0: Welcome, everybody, to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the best-selling author and neurosurgeon, Dr. Evan Alexander, who shares his really unbelievable near-death experience and the revelatory journey he's taken since then in the world of science and spirituality that supports NDEs. Fundamentally, this experience has completely removed all fear of death for him and can do the same for us if we understand what it is that he saw. We talk about the importance of overthrowing the tyranny of materialism and appearance altogether, realizing that reality is fundamentally not made of matter, but it's made of mind, heart, mind, and spirit that the universe is fundamentally loving and therefore provides this wonderful ultimate holding environment that we can relax into at the moment of death, which is the ultimate irreducible instruction for a good death. Evan shares the hyper-reality of what he experienced, how memory is actually not localized or stored in the brain. The brain is really just a reducing valve. It doesn't give rise to consciousness, but actually limits it. We discussed the importance of sound and music in his experience, how sound is at the heart of reality, and how we can use things like binaural beats, sacred acoustics, or sound meditation as a legitimate form of spiritual practice. We also talk about the power of the mind is manifesting in the placebo, and conversely, the nocebo effect, how belief in materialism can take us down. We talk about openness, how a type of near-death experience, so to speak, occurs in deep meditation, and really how heaven is equally a state of mind, right here or now. We don't have to wait till we die to discover heaven. Our conversation closes with a look at translational spirituality or how to use all these insights to help the current ecological, political, and social crisis in the world today. So join me in this truly amazing conversation with an amazing individual. So Alexander, MD, was an academic neurosurgeon for over 25 years, including 15 years at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. He experienced a transcendental near-death experience and NDE during a week-long coma from an inexplicable brain infection that completely transformed his worldview. A pioneering scientist and modern thought leader in the emerging science, that acknowledges the primacy of consciousness in the universe. He's the author of the New York Times' number one bestseller, Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven and Living in a Mindful Universe, all of which I've had just a fantastic time reading. I read the first book when it came out, uh, I think 2008 or so, right?
1: 2012.
0: Oh, 2012. But well, your uh-huh. experience was 2008, right? Correct. Yeah. But Evan, thank you. I know how busy you are. It, it really means a great deal to me that you would take time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. So I really appreciate your time here, my friend. Well, Andrew, thanks for having me on.
1: It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. Yeah. I
0: I want to explore. Well, first of all, I I have to thank you at the outset for the absolute courage, the bravery of your books, especially Proof of Heaven, because I can imagine some of the dissonance that you have received. Um, as a scientist, as an academic neurosurgeon from your peers in the scientific community to speak this radical truth that is so Mm. antithetical to so much of the Western paradigm, this materialistic, physicalistic view. So first off, a a big deep bow of gratitude for your extraordinary courage in writing this book and the follow-up books, which all of which I really just completely enjoyed. And I want to explore with you, um, with your permission, a couple things after um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your experience. Uh, uh, People can read your book. You have a tremendous amount on your very active website about this. But I think some people may not be that familiar with what you went through. And so perhaps we could go through just a few minutes of uh, of a recap of your uh, life-changing experience. And then what I'd like to explore with you are two kind of um, related themes. One is how we can use the insights that you gleaned from your experience to uh, transform our fear of the end of life and the transition into the this thing we call death. And then deeply connected to it, but in, I guess we could say almost a little bit more philosophical, but I often say um, it's really only philosophical because we haven't experienced it yet. This challenge to the Western prevailing worldview of, of degraded reductionist physicalism and materialism and, and how we can look at the world more in terms of um, idealistic, um, premises and purposes. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those will come together in a really mutually supportive way to uh, give people a great deal of practical refuge, a place where they can really go during challenging life situations and archetypally what's more challenging than the end of life. So maybe give us a little bit the elevator pitch in terms of this extraordinary experience that you had. So some people that may not have read your book can kind of get on the same page with us. And then I have a set of questions that I'd certainly like to paint your direction.
1: Okay. Well, I think the uh, most important thing to start with is to point out my uh, origins as a scientist in a very scientific family. Uh, my father, very influential in my life. I was ad- adopted, uh, and my father was a world-renowned neurosurgeon, and uh, that was a tremendous influence on my life. I always knew that science is a pathway to truth. Now, interestingly, my father... Uh, who was very scientific, he, he was the head of a neurosurgical training program, uh, but he also had a very strong belief in God and power of prayer, and that was uh, important to him in every day of his life as, as a healer, as a, as a surgeon who was trying to help patients. Now, for me, though, I, I saw some conflict, and I, I really, uh, you know, in, in training up through the 54 years of my life before my coma, um, I fought that the materialist or physicalist worldview that only the physical world exists and the brain must somehow create consciousness more and more, I was thinking that was the case. I mean, that's what we were studying, even though there were examples of occurrences that could not be explained uh, and that suggested a primacy of consciousness and a reality to the soul. And that's why I think my journey was so uh, important. And the main thing to point out uh, to people here is from the viewpoint of, of of neuroscience and kind of the idea that the neocortex is so crucial with all the detailed uh, 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 elements of conscious awareness, my journey showed just the opposite, that the brain is not the creator of consciousness at all. And in fact, we're conscious in spite of our brain. And that's why I think my journey was so important to the scientific community. And it's not just the book Proof of Heaven, where I went to a lot of the medical details, but 10 years after Uh, my coma experience in September of 2018, there was a medical case report uh, on my medical records that was by three physicians not involved in my care, but absolutely astonished by my miraculous recovery. Because when you go through the medical details, that is what strikes any physician or uh, anyone aware of medical science who reads my case report is like, what in the world? How do you explain this? And uh, in other words, uh, the the doctors who wrote the case report made it very clear that my brain was in no shape to put forth any kind of dream or hallucination, that those parts of my brain were demonstrably gone, inactivated. And that's why the case is so important, Uh, especially in a world that's, that's filled with cardiac arrest and clinical death, but without much in the way of damage to the brain. And the documented damage to my brain was so extensive that it makes that kind of miraculous statement of how did any kind of phenomenal experience happen. uh, That's point one. And point two is the doctors in that case report make it very clear that I should not have uh, had a full recovery. I mean, I went from a 10% chance of survival to 2% chance over that week in coma, but with no chance of full recovery by the end of the week. And that's the part that really gets... uh, Uh, So many uh, physicians and and medical scientists uh, takes them by storm with this particular case. Now, the important elements of the case for people to understand, one is that I was amnesic. That's very unusual for an NDE, but it's what I have to live with. It was the part of my uh, journey that was an exception to the rules, even though by and large, my NDE followed the rules beautifully so that on the 32 point maximum score of Bruce Grayson's NDE scale, I scored a 28 or 29. So it's an extraordinary, anything over seven is a, an NDE. Now the elements of my NDE that are so remarkable, it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, primitive course, unresponsive realm, like being in dirty jello. Uh, but I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. And it opened up like a portal up into this rich ultra real gateway valley. Um, that was, I compare it in many ways to Plato's world of ideals. There was no death or decay anywhere. Tremendous joy and festivity in these thousands of beings that were dancing in this meadow, all dressed in simple, but very colorful garb. Uh, And I was witnessing all this because I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. There were millions of other butterflies, but I never had any body awareness at all during any part of the journey, zero uh and one of the most beautiful aspects of my story is that i wasn't alone on that butterfly wing and witnessing all this beautiful uh dancing and festivities going on below me in this lovely meadow that was rich and lush with plant life blossoms buds on trees flowers all opening in this rich dynamic fabric of being alive uh and beside me on the butterfly wing was a beautiful spiritual companion those who've read proof of heaven will realize how crucial she was four months after my coma, because when I came back from my coma, I knew her so well because of this deep telepathic connection we shared. And yet I also knew that I'd never met her in my life. And I never had read the NDE literature before, but as I read more and more of it, after recovering from coma, after recording 20,000 words of um, of my story, because my older son, who was majoring in neuroscience in college, when I went into coma, He came home two days after I got out of the hospital, gave me a big hug, said it was like there was this light shining in me. I was far more present than I'd ever been before. I told him it was way too real to be real. My doctors had already told me they had no idea how I was coming back to this world. And to me, they were just telling me that I had to have some big hallucination. So I was taking their word for it. But wow, what a hallucination. I didn't realize yet how damaged my brain was and how incapable it was of supporting any such hallucination, but that became clear over the next uh, weeks and months. But anyway, deep in the coma experience, that beautiful girl on the butterfly wing, her message to me, I think, was the central message I was to bring back to this world, and that is to share with all fellow beings, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply cared for. And... um, that was the gift of the journey. Now it turns out that in witnessing all these beautiful kind of earth-like scenes in that spiritual realm of the Gateway Valley, it was all being fueled because up above were these spiritual orbs that were emanating chants and anthems and hymns. And when I wrote it all up weeks later, I called them angelic choirs. And that was what was fueling this incredible festivity and in, in, Uh, joyous uh, adventure that was going on all around me. But then I witnessed all of that collapsing down, all of kind of the lowest four-dimensional space-time realms of the material world collapsing down. And then all of that spiritual world of the Gateway Valley, the place where we would Reconnect with higher souls, with uh, souls of departed loved ones, go through life reviews, plan next incarnations, all those major kind of elements of our deep spiritual essence that would occur in that kind of heavenly realm all of that collapsing down and and important to point out that there's a different ordering of time that applies to all those. And that's what allows for something like a life review. A life review is not some vague, sepia tinted remembering of events, it's a reliving of events in a very detailed fashion. And once you realize that with this level of power, the universe can show us those aspects of our lives in that theater of operations, Then you start to realize that's totally outside of what we call here and now in our kind of spatial references in these material bodies. But all of that collapsed down as I ascended through yet another musical portal provided by those angelic choirs. Uh, And that uh, gateway valley collapsed down until I was all the way out in what I call the core, infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the divine and healing love of that God force. And when I came back to this world, I called that deity Om, because to me the word God was way too puny a word that didn't remotely do justice to the power and majesty and the personal nature of that God force. But I also realized that you know it's a moot point if, if you're gonna discuss and debate whether you wanna call that force God or Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit, I mean, in essence, we're trying with our puny little human minds to limit and define something that is far grander than we could ever imagine, and that is that healing and loving God force of of acceptance, mercy, forgiveness. Uh, And I came back to this world realizing that there's a lot to be said for a unification of religious beliefs around a deity that's absolutely real, as described in near-death experiences going back thousands of years. Now, it turns out that in that core realm, I was told, you're not here to stay. We'll teach you many things, but you'll be going back. And there were tremendous lessons there about reincarnation, about life reviews, about uh, progression and transformation, evolution of all of consciousness throughout the universe. <laughs> we can get into all that in the discussion, but just a short uh, uh shorten this version of the story so we can get to that discussion i'll say that i cycled through these realms multiple times and what would happen is i would tumble back down to that earth for my view but i quickly learned that by remembering the musical notes of the melody mm. i could conjure up that portal and so music or what we remember is music of course you must realize in those realms you know what we experience as music is far more than what in this world limited by our ears and by our brains, we, we would consider to be music. There is kind of an idealized form of kind of music and experience that occurs in that realm of you know, knowledge through identification is what I often call it. Um, but in that uh, gateway valley, uh, I would I would tumble back down and then ascend my way back up by remembering these musical notes, going back into that beautiful gateway valley, always reassured by that loving messenger, that beautiful woman with the sparkling blue eyes and high cheekbones, high forehead, broad smile, who never said a word, but her message to me was very reassuring, affirming and refreshing. Uh, and there came a time when I could no longer conjure up the musical notes to move back up into that gateway valley. To say I was sad at that point would be a, a bit of an understatement, but I also knew I could trust that I would be taken care of. And that was one of the most beautiful gifts of my journey is this uh, now lifelong trust in that the power of that healing, loving, infinitely comforting God source uh, to be there for us and to bring us uh, that love. Uh, the more we love this world and serve as a conduit for love, of that God force, the more it, it kind of bathes us in that beautiful healing uh, force. So it turns out that at this point in the journey, when I'm now kind of banished to the earth where my view, I saw thousands of beings going off into the distance, heads bowed like that, murmuring energy coming from them, many with head, uh, hands up like this, some holding like candles. And that murmuring energy was surprising to me because it brought the very same love, comfort, and kind of personal spiritual home uh, reassurance of this environment that I was now in. But uh, we were no longer in the beautiful kind of spiritual gateway valley and core realm, but now down in these lowest realms. And yet these beings were bringing this loving energy to me. And what I call that in my writings weeks later, I said it was the power of prayer. That's what I was witnessing was this beautiful, kind of a symphony, a, a chorus of, of this prayerful energy, even though I didn't understand the words, but it was very comforting. And it was then that I saw the six faces that would appear to me. They'd come up out of the muck, say a few words that I didn't understand, then they disappear again. And I remember those faces right now as vividly as if the whole thing happened this morning. And yet it all happened on November uh, 16th of 2008, when I was coming out of coma, that I saw those faces. And it turns out that, uh, five of them were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours I was in coma. So they served as what's known as a veridical time anchor uh, to basically show me the vast majority of the coma journey happened between uh, days one and four or days one and five. I explain all that in Proof of Heaven and also, especially, in the follow up Living in a Mindful Universe. Um, and it was really uh, one of those faces was of Susan Wrenches. She was the only one who was never physically present, but she is as real to me as those who were physically present. Turns out she had channeled to me on nights four and five of my coma. She was an old family friend going way back. She had taught in high school with my former spouse, Holly. And now um, uh, the family remembered her work channeling with patients to help heal them. And so they asked her to intervene. Uh, but it was really the sixth phase that made the big difference to me. And that was of a 10-year-old boy. And that was on day seven of coma, Sunday morning, Uh, they'd kept the worst of the news away from bond for most of the week, but now we overheard the doctors in conference saying that it was time to stop the antibiotics, let nature take its course. He knew that was horrible news, came running down the hallway into uh, ICU major Bay 10, uh, pulled open my eyelids, they'd been taped shut. Uh, I was on the ventilator that I'd been on for seven days, and he was pleading with me, Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. As if somehow that would make it so. Even though I did not understand the words, I certainly did not recognize them. But I sensed this deep connection. And that's what drew me back to this world, was a sense of responsibility that I had to another soul to come back to this world. I had no idea what I was coming back to because my amnesia was still in full force. But it was really to come back here to help bond uh, to be with uh, that soul that was so important to me and of course I came back and and uh, initially when I was waking up in the ICU room on day seven of coma I didn't even recognize my mother my sons my sisters at the bedside I had no idea who these beings were Uh, but my words and language came back very rapidly over hours my childhood memories over days and all my semantic knowledge of physics cosmology Science came back over about two months time. And uh, so the rest of it has been an incredible uh, 13 and a half year journey now since my coma, making sense of it, working with scientists around the world uh, and realizing there's a complete revolution in the scientific community all about the nature of the brain-mind connection and the nature of consciousness. And that's exactly what this is all about. And uh, as much as my NDE matches so many other NDEs out there, and as I've been gifted what by thousands of people sharing their stories with me? Uh, the bottom line is this is really about a revolution in human thought that is going to leave, uh, you know, the bleak and paltry fiction of materialism or physicalism uh, in the dust because it's not true. And there's a much deeper and richer truth about our spiritual nature and uh, the spiritual nature of the universe. And that is what I came back to share and luckily found hundreds of scientists around the world who are already far along that pathway of discovery. Wow, I mean, you know, I can just simply say remarkable. I read your
0: books and I've listened to some of your other presentations and hearing it, um, I don't know how many times now, every time it's like, uh, OMG, right, just amazing. So a couple of things, seed solubles for for unpacking here. So, um, I took some notes here, you know, it's interesting, and I'm sure we can unpack some of these sorts of things. You said at the outset in relationship to your father and how science is, is the avenue to truth. that I think one thing that we could ha- perhaps explore is what we know as science is an avenue to a particular bandwidth of truth. And that if we subscribe excessively to science, then it perverts into scientism, which is this colonization that's taking place in the world that basically we we acquiesce to the high priests of the arbiters of truth these days. Um, the scientists, they they are who we turn to unlike in previous ages when we would take refuge in religious authorities, now we take refuge in scientific authorities. And therefore, whether we know it or not, we're all unwitting members in the cult of scientific materialism. And so therefore, what you went through that I really want to unpack in a few minutes is a kind of detoxification of that view. But a couple of the things here, uh, questions and comments. I mean, first of all, very interesting um, that your son's name is Bond and that's somehow <laughs> appropriately named that, that brought you back in.
1: Thank you for noticing. <laughs> um,
0: that's a really interesting thing. And also um just the the well, maybe let's just start with the the ultra reality the ultra reality of this. Um because I I have not had a a literal NDE, but I would say I have had meditative NDEs when I did my three year retreat some 20 years ago um somebody can, to your experience, it was a radical before and after experience where I, Andrew, who I was, actually I was Andy back then. I came out, I, my name was changed. I was Chung for a while. Then it came back to Andrew. Andy died in that retreat and someone came out of that. And so I have had meditative near-death experiences. And we can talk about this later because I think this is one of the ways with your two hours a day of meditation that you're working to enhance, stabilize, um, propagate this experience within yourself and others, but talk to us a little bit, just for starters, there's so many things to unpack here to what do you attribute the ultra reality? Because again, when I've had what are called hyperlucid, um, lucid dreams, I can relate. And also in deep meditation experiences, I can relate to having experiences where I come out for instance, from a hyperlucid dream. And this seems like the foggy dream. Right. I was was more real than this. Or I come out of a, a, a samadhi experience. And this then appears to be the deluded dream. And so speak to us a little bit about both your scientific understanding and also perhaps phenomenological. What do you to what do you attribute the, the ultra-real aspect and therefore the veracity, the authenticity that makes it just unequivocal to you? It's 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 so central and, and stamped into the core of your being that. Um, It's like it says in one of the liturgies I I recite that it says, even if the Buddhas of the three times rose up against you, you will remain in the indestructible Vajra nature. In other words, you're so convicted by what you experience on what level, it doesn't matter what anybody says. So talk to us
1: about that. Well, that's the real beauty of it. And I think it, it really gets right down to this whole kind of thing we call consciousness, which is awareness, awareness of being, awareness of existence. Uh, And it just so happens that in in these material bodies, um, much of what we experience as consciousness has been heavily filtered, filtered by the mechanisms of our sensory organs, like our eyes and ears that are actually very limited in in the kind of range of what they can perceive. Our brains do a, a tremendous amount of filtering and It really is true that we're conscious in spite of our brains. Our brains are really working hard to kind of minimize and limit that conscious awareness. But that's why in meditation, in an NDE, and uh, any number of modes of being where we're liberated from the shackles of the brain and body, we start to come into a much richer form of consciousness. And I would say often it's what I call knowledge through identification in these Mm. journeys, like in Mm. a dream journey. And for example, sometimes in a a, a psychedelic uh, journey, uh, certainly in an NDE. Uh, or a spiritually transformative experience uh, where it's like drinking consciousness from a fire hose. And it's, it's that becoming thing. Uh, that's why, for example, life reviews can happen because when you, when you listen to a number of indie ears who have had life reviews, what you actually discern is this pattern where they experience it from the emotional perspective of others around them. In other words, they're reliving events of their life, but not from their own perspective from the perspective of others. So it's kind of this expanded version of the one mind and our sharing the dream of the one mind. So it's a much bigger form of consciousness. It takes our little ego mind, which is so kind of focused on a a here, now, in a sense itself, and it shows it to be false shows our very being to be grander than that and and simultaneously kind of encompassing and uh, becoming these other beings that are made clear, for example, in a life review that uh, we're sharing this much bigger story. And that's where I think it's, you know, we often hear these experiences are ineffable, uh, that our language, you know, our language is very good for describing a trip to Disney World, but our language has not really evolved to describe these kind of spiritual journeys, at least most of our language has not. And uh, so we try and share them. It's one of the reasons why. Karen and I decided in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, not just to share the scientific principles of this uh, objective idealism and the primacy of mind, but to also offer people tools in the form of meditation, like with Sacred Acoustics. SacredAcoustics.com has tools people can use for deep, uh, conscious exploration. And of course, uh, uh, one of those is free—a 20-minute Om file, just listen through headphones. But uh, yeah, I think if you look at the testimonials page. Sacredacoustics.com, you'll see a lot of people who've never had an NDE are starting to achieve the kind of uh, connection with that grander sense of self and that kind of spiritual identity with the universe that you're talking about. So I would be the first to say that it doesn't take an NDE to fully get this. Uh, You just need to be familiar with exploring consciousness and questioning the limits of what our culture says our limitations, our beliefs in many ways are very empowering, but they can also be very constrictive. And I would say that many of the beliefs in our materialist society are very falsely uh, restrictive and constricting, and they prevent us from uh, truly manifesting this much grander power of free will. And for me as a physician, a beautiful example of that free will, writ large would be placebo effect. Yeah. you know, And for six decades, We've used placebo effect as a gold standard for assessing any new medical treatment or modality. And placebo effect is the admission by medical scientists that our beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes have tremendous power in influencing our healing. Uh, And they do. And it goes much further than just a sugar pill and a headache. If you go to noetic.org, the Institute of Noetic Sciences website, put in the search term spontaneous remission, You'll find a book they published in the mid-1990s with more than 3,500 cases of people healing advanced cancers, infections, things like that, far beyond any medical intervention by using what we normally would label as spiritual factors, how we deal with our kind of emotional truths, enhance our positive truths, properly process any negative emotional uh, realities we have. Uh, adopting uh, some purpose in life and, and a more spiritual approach to life, uh, going within, meditating, prayer, things like this. These can all open doors to a much grander sense of our free will and its ability to uh, manifest uh, the universe of our dreams. And this is where I think this revolution and understanding is so important for humanity because in many ways we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner, a collective gift of desperation to borrow a phrase from addiction and alcoholism work. Uh, But I'm very optimistic about the future of humanity But that optimism comes in seeing the possibilities for us to grow Uh, From uh, many of the negative experiences of our addictions to materialism, to fossil fuels, uh, to profit motive, all these things that have kind of corrupted human spirit, but now it's time to grow back into that grander soul we truly came here to be. And that's where I think much of this uh, discussion can lead.
0: It's re- remarkable. And I, I was thinking of you know, Huxley's famous fa- uh, phrase of the, the brain as a reducing valve, right? Mm-hmm. And then once the reducing valve is actually removed, the mind literally expands to the to the extent that you explore in your book. And that also the, the great yogis mystics have explored where literally um, the mind merges with the universe, the the unity, right. the oneness that you're referring to. And so, so many things here that you're talking about really, really compelling. One is this knowledge through identification. I had a, a very interesting conversation, Evan, with uh, Christopher Bache. You, you quote him in one of your books. Uh-huh. He recently wrote this, you know, professor of philosophy, wrote this quite revolutionary book called LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And in this, uh, my conversation with him, we talk about my language in a kind of Gnostic pedagogy. Well, what Chris is referring to is when he was going through these, these machines, he didn't talked about them as trips because they really weren't trips. They were spiritual inquiries into the nature of mind and reality that it really involved a a, a kind of a a hyper pedagogical technique where you learn things in a non-dualistic way. You learn things by becoming those things. And this is one one of the things I wanted to circle back to a little bit that I found really interesting in what you said in your first set of comments, Evan, about there was no fundamental body awareness. And I wanted to ask you along these lines, whether when you went through the experience, there was any sense of self-referencing whatsoever. In other words, is most of what you're sharing with us a postscript integration? When when you were having these experiences, were you actually able to register these in a self-referential way in terms of I am having this? Or was it in fact this very absence that you didn't have a body, like what did Freud say, ego is first and foremost a body ego. If you didn't have a body, were you actually experiencing things in this kind of non-dualistic way and then post script and I say this from my meditation experiences because when when we when one has these kind of non-dualistic experiences, they're utterly ineffable, indescribable there's nothing you can really say when you're in them. the commentary so to speak, the integration in conventional terms happens post experience where you come out, and then the apparatus, the understanding, conventional ways of integrating start to come into play. And in a certain way, you retrofit current understanding to aneffable prior experience. So say a little bit more, if you would. When you had this experience, there was no body present. Was there any sense of self-reference taking place? Any sense of referring the this the enormity of the experience back to the self? Or was it really, for lack of a better term, a non-dualistic pedagogical? And, and therefore well,
1: it was definitely an uh, an experience of non-self, where I was complete. I mean, ego. Evan Alexander's ego was gone from, from my awareness completely uh, for that week, and that was uh, uh, in retrospect. It took me months, uh, if not a year or more, to really kind of understand why, how, you know, what would be a purpose of such a a, a major disconnect? Uh, because obviously, my NDE was incomplete. In the sense that I believe if I had been going through a complete kind of death experience, that I would have come back into alignment with those memories. But an important lesson that I gleaned from it, and, and this is discussed in great detail in our book, Living in Mind for Universe, including an appendix yeah. devoted to it, is the fact that memories are not stored in the brain. This is one of the biggest nails in the coffin of materialist neuroscience. And yet my experience was a beautiful example of that because it took me two months to recover all the semantic knowledge I I gained over 54 years of studying the scientific world. It took two months for all that to come back. It was like a gently falling snow. And not only that, based on detailed conversations, Uh, both long after the coma and long before the coma with close family and friends, I realized that the memories after their return two months post coma and beyond were more complete than the memories had been before coma. So there's a very important set of lessons there about consciousness and memory, not being resident in the physical brain itself that was made crystal clear to me in this journey, especially as I unravel all the medical details of my case. And that includes the unraveling by those doctors who wrote the case report. So it's uh, Uh, You know, an extraordinary kind of uh, way of looking at consciousness and objective idealism uh, is the model we're talking about emerging here, this primacy of consciousness of this kind of top down uh, ordering of causality. And that's where I think the real power of this kind of story and of NDEs at large, uh, uh, that's what what they bring to us and, and the power to bring change to this world in a very positive direction. That's where I think so much of this uh, is leading.
0: And I think really the, the one one thing that I have to put an exclamation point on in terms of my initial charter for our conversation was th- this, and I want to unpack this with you now, Evan, is this extraordinary discovery of the matrix of reality being really of the fabric of love. And that yeah. uh, I love what you say in in uh, Proof of Heaven that that was really perhaps the central message that you took away from this. And this to me is of unparalleled importance when it comes to things like the end of life, because um, I think it was Donald Winnicott, right? The post-Freudian um, British pediatrician psychiatrist who, who coined the term holding environments. This notion that is highly intuitive in a conventional way that if a if an infant is held properly archetypally in the womb, and then a proper holding environment through the uh, um, or family of origin, then natural growth, healthy growth occurs. And, and I often think that the, the same uh, critical importance of holding environments at the beginning of life maintains for holding environments at the end of life and even beyond. And often when, when I'm teaching, I write a lot about the stuff I work a Great Deal in Hospice. I often talk to people about, or when they ask me like, well, what's the best thing I could do for someone when they're dying? I, and I share with them, well, think of the feeling that you get when someone that you really love just gives you a big, warm hug, you can't help but open, relax, and let go. And so for me, holding environments are hugging environments. And so what you're talking about here, Evan, that is just extraordinary, is the holding, hugging environment of the cosmos itself. That if we can replace this degraded materialistic view with a a, a kind of, you know, replace reductionism with, it's a neologism, but you get it, elevationism. The world isn't made of matter, or like my friend Ken Wilbur says, frisky dirt. Everything is a play of frisky dirt. No, everything's a play of heart, mind, spirit, Kokoro. And so if we really understand that, whoa, does this change the way we relate to the end of life? That when we actually release the self-sense, this thing that is uncompromisingly brought about us through this thing called death that this ultimate hugging holding environment, which is the love of the cosmos that's is waiting there to hold you. Right. I mean, what a radical transformation in relationship to the end of life that is. And therefore conjoining that with this other deeper notion of an idealistic reality, which is totally connected here, that um, in a very real way, when we go, there's no place that we can go that is not conscious. There's no right. place that is not mind. And so is this is why mind. it is all mine. And so this is why in the Buddhist languaging, um, they talk about death, very interesting terminology. of I And mean, they use the phrase, the dream at the end of time. They talk about three types of dream, the nocturnal dream, the primary dream, which is this waking reality. And mm-hmm. then interestingly enough, the dream at the end of time. And I always talk about dream as kind of code language for manifestation of mind. And so therefore I'm, I'm throwing a lot of noodles against the wall here really, when we can answer the question that's often asked, where do we go when we die? Well, we just transition from one dream to the next, from one manifestation of mind to the next. And if we really know this in our hearts and in our bones, then the single central, most important instruction for a good death naturally takes place, which is what? Open, relax. That's it. All you have to do is get out of the way, let nature simply dissolve the self-sense spontaneously, and you will dissolve into this fundamental, beautiful, loving, hugging, holding environment. And so let's talk a little bit more about that, because if people can really get this in their system, whoa, is this a game changer? Instead of dreading the end of life, we actually now have something to look forward to, a radical reversal of our conventional degraded views.
1: Well, I I love what what you're bringing out, because to me, it just reminds me that that uh, one of the biggest surprises, I would say, in looking back on my whole experience, was that in a territory that sounds so foreign, is that earth where my view and the gateway valley in the core, that in fact, I would find it to be so welcoming as a spiritual home with such familiarity. And, and so in many ways, you're right, there's this big embrace, this holding by the universe, this embrace of bathing in God's love. Uh, in that spiritual realm that uh, you know that's why people have NDEs and come back to this world and no longer fear death because yeah. they realize it's it's not an obliteration I mean that's what of course scares you know a materialist who might consider it that they predict that the as the brain goes dark so does the mind well it's the exact opposite of that as the brain goes dark and the body goes dark the mind actually is greatly enhanced I love how you brought up uh uh, Aldous Huxley's reference to the reducing valve. Uh, it's amazing how we often use technological metaphors depending on the main technology of the day. Yeah, exactly. And back then they had steam engines as their big technology. Nowadays, people mistakenly pretend that computers are like brains. That's not true at all. Uh, you know, it no more no more so than steam engines are like uh, minds. So uh, this whole idea of the reducing valve though, is very valuable and it points out that Uh, William James, you know, back in the head of psychology at Harvard, uh, way back at the turn of the 20th century, uh, 19th to 20th century. And then of course, uh, Henri Bergson in France also discussed filter theory. Uh, Frederick W.H. Meyer uh, in England, a very uh, big proponent of filter theory. And then of course, Huxley, as you pointed out, Uh, and many others now are taking up the banner big time of scientists of consciousness studies in the current era. Uh, like Ed Kelly at UVA, yeah. uh, who is a huge proponent of Frederick Meyer's work and this uh, notion of the reducing valve. And so in, in our book, Living the Mind for the Universe, we took that notion of primordial mind, of objective idealism that we were supporting from many different lines of inquiry uh, and kind of bring it to the fore with this notion of the brain as a filter or reducing valve. Uh, I would say it's more like a transceiver, but ultimately what we realized is that the brain is not the ultimate home of consciousness or of, uh, of memory. Uh, they really reside in an information field that is outside of the brain. And the brain is important for accessing memory and kind of conscious awareness, but it is certainly not generating it de novo. And that's why when the brain and body die, you get such an apparent liberation of conscious phenomenal experience. And that's what uh, so many describe. Now, and for your audience who need more objective knowledge of proving the reality of this afterlife, I would point out that there was a contest held in in, uh, the year 2021 hosted by Robert Bigelow. uh, And that contest was uh, asking scientists who studied this question, what's the best evidence for conscious awareness beyond permanent bodily death? and uh, they received uh, 204 essays in response to that question. All of the people who wrote them had to demonstrate at least five years of professional work studying the question of the afterlife, and then 29 essays won awards, and t- first place was Jeffrey Mishlov. Beautiful essay, and I would highly encourage any and everyone out there, go read these essays. Begin with uh, Mishlov's, and you can find them all at bigelowinstitute.org. That's the website. They're all free. They're available. Uh, those who have a very uh, heavy scientific bent might want to dive into Bernardo Castrop's offering. It's a beautiful masterpiece that doesn't re- rely on any kind of para- paranormal or parapsychological data whatsoever, but just on kind of modern mainstream science that's very quantum informed. Uh, Bernardo Castrop was one of the endorsers of our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, as was Ed Kelly, Bruce Grayson, Jim Tucker. Uh, Larry Dossey, a lot of other scientific minds, Dean Radin, have endorsed Living in a Mindful Universe. And it's all about making the argument for idealism, that we're sharing this one mind. And that is what is really coming to dominate a lot of the discussions of consciousness studies in the current era. And it's a very exciting time because what it does is it deletes that fiction nonsense of materialism that falsely separates us into individual beings and instead shows we're all in this together, just as near-death experiences make very clear through their life reviews. The life review is like the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, written directly into the fabric of the universe. And that's why i think this world needs to grow up this modern science of consciousness studies really leads us uh, definitively towards witnessing this kind of one mind nature reality and that if we hurt another we're hurting ourselves and this lesson should not be lost on the current world especially when we're lost in our addictions to wealth to fossil fuels things like that, we really need to take care of each other and have a much more sustainable future of energy and of, uh, of love and compassion, kindness, mercy, acceptance, and when necessary, forgiveness. These are all deep and beautiful lessons of this emerging science of consciousness that really uh, teaches us of the oneness that we share with the universe at large and with each other. Uh, and ultimately, we'll have to do a better job taking care of our animal friends because they're a huge part of the spiritual world we're talking about. These are r- remarkable statements, and I have to st- uh, say at
0: the outset how, how big a fan I am of Bernardo's work. I, I think he's borderline genius with his ability to bring from a, a purely logical, rational, scientific approach a decimation of the materialistic view encapsulated right. by his wonderful book, why materialism is baloney. Right. I, I refer to Bernardo now as the baloney man. He's so brilliant and his ability to really I love talk that. About, he talks a lot about uh, uh, analytic idealism, but this is let, let's talk about this because this is really the, the hard essence of, of perhaps your journey and our conversation. It, and then to tie this in a little bit, Evan, to the, the power of belief the placebo effect, which I'm also a deep student of, and conversely, the nocebo effect. And, and what I mean by this is that because we are unwitting subscribers, we don't even know that we don't know, talk about a blind spot, that yeah. we we unwittingly subscribe to the cult. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to talk about it as a cult of scientific materialism. And I believe this does bring about a kind of nocebo opposite of the placebo effect that degrades everything in this really pathetic worldview that then, they, lest they it just be relegated to philosophical armchairing. No, this is why we fear death. We fear death because it's revelatory of our subscription to the reductionist materialistic view. And so, if you're afraid of death, it's because you're subscribing to this, whether you know it or not. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about this Um Lama Yeshe Rinpoche talks about it, thro- overthrowing the tyranny of appearance. What else we can do to um, put dents in this uh, really outdated operating system where everything mind is reducible to brain, brain is reducible to, you know, the, the cascading neurons, acids, right. the, the neurons to fundamental, you know, basically, as you know, um, emptiness, nothingness but talk to us a little bit about more about how um, we as as interested practitioners, journeyers on this path um, can really work more with this idealistic approach and um, use it to really transform our relationship, not only to the end of life, but as you were intimating earlier, also our relationship to the entire phenomenal world, because another untoward consequence of this view is seeing the world as as solid, lasting, independent, dualistic, as a natural resource to be exploited. And therefore this um, so-called philosophical view is destroying the planet because we subscribe to this. And so what we're talking about here, my languaging is a kind of translational spirituality. It's not just sitting on the cushion, not just going through an NDE, not just going through psychotropic agents and entheogens, but really in this day and age, taking what we're doing here, translating it into enlightened activism in the world. Because my big thing these days, if we don't do it, not only is our spirituality going to go extinct, but we're going to go extinct. We, we are at a punctuated equilibrium point. As you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the right. choir here. But I th- again, a lot of noodles on the wall, but what, what else can we do based on your experience to really break down the door of this really outmoded way of looking at reality and start to explore things as they
1: truly are. Well, I think it's important to take some time every day to go within. Uh, I mean, so much of the disease and toxicity of our modern era and this false sense of separation comes from little ego minds that keep perpetuating uh, a, a bleak and paltry fictional story from materialism. So the more we can kind of go within mind, explore mind uh, and start to discover, I mean, mind can contain infinity and eternity uh, with ease. Uh, Maybe not with ease, but (laughs) certainly better than the physical world can ever do. Uh, And so practicing going within is very important. And that's why for me, a daily practice of meditation that I started more than uh, 11 years ago has become so crucial to me. And as I think you point out, a lot of my progress has been not just from having had the NDE, but from this daily practice of meditation. Uh, but then, of course, th- there's everything else we do, because the true growth of a soul in this world is what we do as, you know, out here in these bodies, living in this physical world. And, and so it's not just about meditating and going within and and cultivating our connection with that primordial mind, with that kind of neutral observer uh, that Karen and I so often talk about, but it's really about uh, coming to kind of glean lessons from that broader sense of self. And again, it's one that intentionally leaves that little ego mind behind because in meditation, one of the first things I learned and one of the most important things for me to do is to let that little voice, Evan Alexander's little voice in my head can make us uh, state a request or ask a question. But then that little voice goes into timeout. And that's one of the most important parts of my meditation that I can teach is that that little voice in our head, remember what Michael Singer calls that voice in your head, the annoying roommate. (laughs) In his book, The Untethered Soul, he labels it such, and that's what it is. And I know Evan Alexander's little ego mind is nothing more than an annoying roommate, but there's a higher soul aspect of me that's come to recognize that over more than a decade of deep daily meditation uh, so it's uh, it's really a gift to kind of get to that point this experience of non-self within a meditative state but it's also an opening up to the kind of floodgates of that fire hose of conscious awareness that we talked about earlier and many creative minds throughout history uh, no matter what their position on spiritual matters, have come to uh, gain great creativity and insight from the universe through simpler techniques of opening up their kind of hypnagogic awareness uh, to this uh, kind of greater aspect of self. Uh, and for example, Einstein would float around in a boat, looking up at, the, staring up at the clouds, often to where the harbor patrol had to kind of come and rescue him and bring him home at night. But that's where he'd been gleaning these deep mysteries of the universe or Thomas Alva Edison who had a technique of dropping weights in his hands when he was really tired. He'd get a few micro naps and, and then his creativity would would be sparked and his inventions would flow. Robert Louis Stevenson had a similar technique for uh, when he was nodding off to get in that hypnagogic space. So it's all about learning to better utilize our access to all the full spectrum of conscious awareness uh, through intentional meditations. uh, And I promise you that over time, that my normal daily awakening consensus participation in reality has been shifted in a very powerful way with these daily meditations that helps me to do a much better job at kind of uh, intuition and with empathy to kind of bring a lot of that connectedness with others into my normal waking consciousness. So there are many ways we can kind of integrate this process of meditation going within seeking wisdom from different directions from the universe. Uh, through uh, cultivating these kind of hypnagogic spaces uh, of expansion of our conscious awareness, but then also paying big attention to the lives we're living here in this material world. Because in many ways, this is where our souls actually do the growing, even though they have to do it partially kind of dumbed down with this program forgetting of not remembering prior lives and between lives. Uh, You know, as, as the doctors who study past life memories in children suggestive reincarnation, like the group at UVA who have studied more than 2,500 such cases will tell you, you have to harvest those memories before age five or six because they're natural processes that cover them over beyond that point. And uh, this is where things like an NDE or, or uh, intentional meditation, etc., can help us to uncover those memories, because I'm sure that a lot of what I witness in my deepest moments of meditation that seem like beautiful kind of seeds for dreams, lucid dreams, what have you, uh, are in fact uh, part of my soul journey, maybe reflecting another lifetime that I've actually lived. But putting all of that information together is very important, and I can do it. Uh, by this very kind of open process of engaging with the world, including active meditation, which starts to then impinge on my dream space and sleeping. Uh, But then also, of course, that plays a tremendous role in my understanding the world in my normal waking consciousness. So all of this is part of the awakening we're talking about. Uh, And certainly the scientific knowledge supporting the one mind uh, uh, idealism. I know in the second place Bigelow essay that was by Dr. Pim van Lommel, he wrote an excellent essay. I can highly recommend it. But towards the end of his essay, he's making the point that this one mind is a very real concept that will help this world to grow up, to mature in terms of our spiritual understanding and essence, we'll take care of each other uh, by acknowledging this one mind. And he he lists four resources, Pim van Lommel does at the end of his essay, supporting the one mind idea, one of them is um, the book, Spiritual Science by Steve Taylor. Uh, another is that beautiful book by Dr. Larry Dossi called One Mind, which I highly recommend. Uh, a third is a paper by Bernardo Castrop, and I think it's in Journal of, of Consciousness Studies. I don't recall the journal, it came out, I believe in 2018. It's called uh, The Universe in Consciousness. It's an excellent essay really hits the nail on the head. And the fourth source that he mentions is our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. We were very honored that Pim van Lommel acknowledged our book in that fashion. But I would also say that Pim van Lommel's book, Consciousness Beyond Life, is a beautiful expose of NDEs and how they show us uh, this reality of the one mind and of consciousness surviving bodily death. So this is really an important part of the revolution. It's where the science is going. The more people understand this, the more they can help in their own journey of manifesting the free will of their own mind. Remember that materialist science would scoff at you for claiming to have free will because that conventional materialist science science or scientism, as you pointed out earlier, Uh, basically says that only the physical world exists. It's all chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain. So there's no place to actually insert any kind of spirituality or free will at all. They look at it in that kind of bleak materialist fashion, mechanistic fashion, uh, which is absolutely false. With the advent of quantum physics, we realize that ions and ion channels in the brain are not acting like billiard balls on a billiard table. This is not some Newtonian deterministic model of reality. But in fact, when you realize the quantum nature of ion channels in the brain, you start to appreciate the full bore power of, of quantum effects and that uh, wide open momentum vector as to whether or not it fires, it's all being dominated from the realm of consciousness. And that is the important lesson that the modern world needs to learn and grow from.
0: That's amazing, Evan. And I want to just emphasize two narratives that I think really are, are core here. One is this narrative of interiority, that I think one way to answer my own question that we can overthrow the tyranny of appearance is by uh, continually not violating the natural curfew, and breaking out, and in, in, in subscribing to external appearances, always pulling ourselves out and away from ourselves. And so, it's very interesting, is it not, that when we age, get sick, and die, it's it really is a type of forced, non-negotiable interiority. We're actually being right. forced to deal with the internal right. dimensions. And it's like it's like uh, Sylvia Bursting once says, playfully, you know, "Happiness is an inside job." Well, discovering the nature of reality is an inside job. It so is ha- totally. When you had your NDE in a certain way, this was a forced interior journey. You you took this labyrinth into the center of your central self, right? To really, discover the nature of things. And so, I really want to. In fact, it's so central, Eben, in, in the Buddhist arena that in the Tibetan language, the word for Buddhist is is Nangpa, literally transliterated as insiders. Those right. who really cultivate interiority. So I, th- I think that internal journey is absolutely critical. It's one reason I'm such a fan of the nocturnal meditations, my languaging, which includes hypnagogic liminal dreaming, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, which by the way, when you talk about the inky black darkness, that is the experience of sleep yoga. And right. then the last of the nocturnal meditations, of course, is bardo yoga, the tremendous literature in Tibetan Buddhism on thanatology, working with these principles. And so I really resonate, and that's why I subscribe to these nocturnal meditations as vectors for this interiority. The second thing, and I, want, I want, I'd love to um, solicit a comment from you around this, the second rather massive narrative for me is that of openness, that in a real way, my favorite definition of meditation these days is habituation to openness, and in fact, it is the archetype of the ego, just this arrested form of development, this reducing valve, that Contracts out of fear, fear of the truth, fear of in, in Buddhist language, emptiness, and it is in fact this this contraction that pulls us away from the infinity, the eternity that is reality, shrink wraps it into this thing called self, and therefore um, samsara ensues upon that type of contraction. So the, the question I want to ask you, Evan, is um, when you had your experience of, of no self in the the NDE. I would suspect that openness, because it's it's you use that term a great deal in all your books, that openness is central to the entire affair. And I'm also wondering that if, in fact, had you indeed referred some of these experiences to central headquarters, that that would have been translated as fear and contraction. So, in fact, the reason perhaps, again, I'm conjecturing, that you felt such wonder, um, awe, and uh, in, in just Um, I wouldn't say bewilderment, just tremendous uh, radiance in this experience was precisely because you didn't contract precisely. You didn't have a sense of reference. Someone actually experienced it. And otherwise, I would think that perhaps if you did, that this could, in fact, have elicited a contraction that would have pulled you out of that experience because of fear and then hurled you back into some involuntary kind of incarnation of form. So talk to us a little bit about, if you would, the, where the narrative of openness and contraction fits in in this experience and whether that languaging speaks to you.
1: Well, that, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, Karen and I discuss what we call the supreme illusion. Yeah, beautiful. love and it. And the supreme illusion, um, in, in many ways, we talk about subjectivity and objectivity in that book, and we go very far towards making the case that the only thing that ever truly exists is subjectivity. We might make claims about a claimed objectivity of agreement in our consensus reality, but in many ways, we can never know the deep truths of any kind of overlap along those lines. But the main point we're making about the supreme illusion that I think is very important to get is as much as I sit here and I look out on the world and I sense all the things out there around me as the physical world out there, never forget that what you're actually experiencing is a model within mental space right. that is supposed to represent something that is out there. And some of the biggest and most profound kind of mysteries that have come out of quantum physics and psychology uh, in the last few decades uh, is enough to cause us to question every bit of what we perceive to be out there. In fact, one of the deep lessons in quantum physics is that there is no external objective physical reality independent of the observer at all. That's why quantum physics has been so absolutely difficult to kind of unravel. It seems to defy some of our most fundamental kind of assumptions about the nature of reality. And yet this one is very important to question at deep levels, that supreme illusion. Uh, Because once you realize that all of the out there for all of eternity has never been anything more than an internal construct within the mental space. That's when you can start to liberate yourself from the, from the full nature of that illusion. So to get the supreme illusion deeply and to explore it uh, in meditation is a tremendous gift of openness, uh, as you're talking about. And, and to me, it was interesting to find that this, this process that people assume is going within, within, within mind is actually going out, 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 out into the universe. I mean, that's what we're doing because it all is ultimately mental top-down causal derived. Uh, And so it it kind of shifts the way we look at our relationship with the physical world, uh, with causation, with our uh, sense of will, uh, but also opens up possibilities when you realize that all the external world is in so many ways an internal world, that is a world that you certainly have some influence on. And uh, what you start to realize is there's tremendous possibilities to express manifestation in that external world by altering your beliefs thoughts and attitudes about your world at large and that includes you know out there in there because all of it ultimately is really in there so uh, it's 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 a different way of looking at it but a way that greatly expands your sense of agency uh, in being able to uh kind of first of all glean information from this world at large but also to influence it at large. And that includes distant healing, power of prayer, healing others, uh, praying for the world at large. I mean, meditators showed decades ago that just having like 3% of a community active meditators can dramatically alter the overall ambience of that community and bring a lot more kind of peace and harmony to it. So it's not like everyone on earth has to meditate, but the more of us who participate in bringing peace and harmony and prosperity to all of our fellow beings in our meditative space the more likely it is to start to manifest in our consensus reality yeah
0: this is what remember the book uh, some 20 years ago called the maharishi effect you remember that mm-hmm. that's where they talk about this kind of connective tissue of consciousness right that basically using morphogenetic fields and the like that what we do because we are in fact it's very revelatory because we tend to think And maybe i'm just being confessional here that that um, our our mental, affective, emotional processes are ineffectual because we subscribe to this materialistic view. If if I'm thinking something against Mount Everest in the background, I'm not going to affect Mount Everest. But if I realize the world is made of the fabric of mind, heart, spirit, the same thing I'm made of, then what I do in here, so to speak, has implications out there and hence the power of prayer and things like that. And so, i've right. also remembered that you 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 referenced john wheeler in your book um i'm a huge fan of his he famously says there is no out there out there right and it's <laughs> it's an amazing summation of this whole thing and yeah. this can't this cannot be overstated and i do this as a thought experiment frequently now for myself and for people when i'm instructing them on these views is they really pause for a second and reflect the only thing you ever really have is experience right that's it, everything else is inference. And so, so many implications here, it's it's astounding. And so one thing, and and, and, uh, I think Ed Kelly writes about this is well, okay, well, how do you then explain things called like matter? Well, matter is just a a term we append to the regularity of experience. right? And so this is where the genius of of Bernardo's work comes into play Mm -hmm. and and, um, really, again, trying to kick in the doors to this incredible view. One thing I wanna return to here, Evan, um, before I forget is, you mentioned this over and over in in your books and um, today, and in your talks, is is the role of sound. Um, And I don't wanna completely put to the side the idealism thing, because that really is core. But before I forget, I wanna talk to you about the role of music and sound, because I'm a a musician by training. I'm a, a trained classical pianist. I have a tremendous connection to mantra, Um, I interviewed on my uh, podcast, uh, Kulri Chowdhury, who wrote this wonderful book, Sound Medicine, How to Use Ancient Science of Sound to Heal the Body and Mind. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's really compelling that when you return to the core, your experience of the Godhead was auditory, acoustic, Mm -hmm. ohm. This has tremendous, pardon the play on words, resonance with things like string theory that now particles can actually be gleaned. There's actually nodes of vibration in reality. This is a game changer. So, both in terms of your experience through your NDE, your work with sacred acoustics, and what you—if in fact whether you play with mantra on your own end—talk to us a little bit about the, the the place of sound on your path and your experience, and how we can cultivate um, this type of relation to, to sonic principles.
1: Well, I, I would certainly point out in the last few decades, I've had a lot of interaction with sound. The very job I was working at when I went into coma, uh, I was promoting global research in focused ultrasound surgery, a form of using ultrasound for its therapeutic effect, not for visualization. Uh, so that's what I was doing when I went to coma. And then, of course, my coma, what I discovered was sound was absolutely crucial. What we remember as sound, what we remember as tunes or uh, melodies, what have you, uh, can serve a tremendous role in helping to guide our spiritual journeys in those spaces. So sound was absolutely essential. Now, crucial to point out that in those journeys, those are not sounds, you know, limited by what is available to your ears and processing in your brain. I mean, those sounds are a much more idealized form of of perfect sound uh, that I was encountering. Uh, But then, of course, uh, to me and looking back on it all, it's just amazing how within two years of awakening from my coma, I realized that if I was going to make any sense of any of this, I had to explore consciousness actively. And the first modality I I encountered in terms of deep meditative techniques was differential frequency brainwave entrainment in the form of binaural beats, which had been discovered in the mid-1800s as a phenomenon in the late 20th century. Binaural beat and the brainwave entrainment they were associated with was found to enhance out-of-body experiences and remote viewing, the ability to discern information across time and space at a distance like in some of the psychic spy programs and other modalities of using remote viewing. Uh, But sound was always right there at the key. And of course, in this discussion uh, of sacred acoustics, we're talking about uh, slight differences in frequencies delivered to the two ears. And the fact I believe it has such a powerful effect on our conscious awareness is that unlike most sounds you've ever heard like a chant or anthem or hymn that might have influenced a transcendental state of awareness those are all processed in the acoustic cortex of the temporal lobes circuits that for the most part have, have come about in the last few million years uh, say three to five million years in primates and homo sapiens very different are the sounds of sacred acoustics and other binaural beat brainwave entrainment they are uh processed in the lower brainstem Mm -hmm. in circuits that arose more than 300 million years ago. And there's a general principle in evolutionary biology that if you want to get at a function, the roots of a certain function, for example, consciousness, you want to look at the anatomy of associated structures, for example, the brain going back through evolution. And what we find is preservation of this circuit over 300 million years. And it still serves as an active localization. So if I hear a snap behind my head, that circuit calculates where it is based on sound waves going 1,000 feet per second, hitting my eardrums at slightly different times, a few microseconds apart. But what we're doing with Sacred Acoustics is we're harvesting kind of the power of that deep brainstem circuit. And just like people use uh, slow visual um, oscillating stimulus, say for hypnotic um, induction, People use EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing for post-traumatic stress disorder. This is using movements of the eyes with a, associated with a lower midbrain circuit. Uh, so we're always kind of driving these oscillations in the lower brainstem. The sacred acoustics is just going to a more primitive level down in the medulla. To drive that superior olivary nucleus complex and oscillate it back and forth, say at four hertz or five hertz, three hertz, what have you, in the deep kind of uh, alpha and theta and delta range. Uh, and that's where I believe we get such a profound effect is because it helps to disconnect conscious awareness from the normal business of kind of uh, cycling rhythms in the brain that uh, attach to consciousness. But this is a way of separating our conscious mind kind of as is done in, in dreaming sleep, uh, but even more effective at leaving kind of a will of, of soul uh, in power uh, during those times when uh when you're disconnecting so actively from the brain and body and the here and now and sense of self.
0: And so, so I'm curious, i um, as a purist, um, do you think this is cheating? Uh, I, I mean, on one level, right. In, in, in engaging these technologies and I'm, I'm with you on this one. I, I really, I love the incorporation of modern technologies and using Really, neurophenomenological approaches, right? Where when we, particular states of mind have neural signatures, and therefore in a bi directional way, you can work with the neural correlates as a way to bring about phenomenal states of mind. But do you see this in any way, uh, what, a near enemy of this being a crutch that eventually could become limiting? No. In
1: fact, I, I look at them as training wheels. And you know, I made the point earlier that. I'm sure that my normal uh, kind of participation in a consensus waking consciousness has shifted as I've gotten away from the ego focus of me before coma to a much more kind of primordial mind focus me after coma through meditation. And I, I believe that these techniques, for me, they seem very natural. Uh, and again, it's not as if I feel like I have to depend on my binaural brainwave entrainment to get in these states. Uh, but... The more I practice it, you know, day in, day out, year after year, the more I find a natural ability to just exist in those very same modes. So I, I don't look at them as an unnatural mode at all. I I, I must say I, I often have to make the argument that I believe that some of the benefits, uh, for example, there's there's recent work using psilocybin and other uh, serotonin 2a type psychedelic substances plant medicines entheogens is what i like to call them meaning you know engendering god within that kind of thing Uh, and i bring them up because lately for example in treating alcoholism addiction and also terminal uh, patient terminal cancer patients debilitating fear of death both those things strong addictions opiates uh, nicotine etc and the fear of death have been treated with psilocybin. And it's one or two doses. It's not as if you have to keep taking the psilocybin. And my point would be, I believe that you can actually get a better benefit from using meditation instead of the the plant medicine in the first place. The plant medicine shows us two important things. One is that by engaging kind of our higher mind and traversing the, the veiling function of the brain, we can bring healing into our lives and that will ease us out of addictions ease us out of a fear of of death and that that can be accomplished through one of two doses of psilocybin in a proper therapeutic setting. The other important thing that psilocybin and similar plant medicines are showing us today are the scientific papers that show that the brain goes dark when you take such substances. Mm-hmm. to anybody who's ever taken LSD, DMT, you know an active principle in ayahuasca, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, et cetera, you might think that your brain must be lighting up like a Christmas tree to explain those extraordinary, phenomenal experiences. But in fact, the opposite is happening. Your brain is going dark. There's not a single neuronal population in your brain that's increasing activity they're all taking the night off. And that is a very important statement because the brain is not ultimately the creator of such experiences, just like it's not ultimately the creator of any conscious experience. Uh, And that's why we need to wake up to this kind of bigger reality and start understanding uh, how the non-material realms and our interactions with them can help us to facilitate a much richer manifestation of the world of our dreams in this consensus material realm, but it's all because of top-down causality and the role of mental, the mental layer of the universe in causing what emerges and appears in this world. But I would argue strongly that meditation is a much more effective and powerful way than using psilocybin to try and get that kind of healing in your life. Uh, through uh, you know this whole program of understanding, just as we explain in our book, "Living in a Mindful Universe."
0: Yeah, I think that's really an important point because it's 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 more green, it's more organic. These other um, upaya skillful means in in the in the Hindu and Buddhist language, in mean, they talk about um, pointing out transmissions, or in this case, you could say pointing in transmissions, where a particular teacher, in empowerment, or whatever certain environments. Will be brought about that point out particular ecstatic states of mind, right. um, so-called altered states. Which, parenthetically, I, I would argue those are not altered states. This is the altered state when you're this having. This is a very
1: states, altered state.
0: Yeah, what, what this is, I think, really important. I had this conversation with Chris Baish that when he was engaging in his twenty-year LSD sessions, that it's very easy to think that somehow these these um, you have to go somewhere outside of here to attain these states, and so it's all here. It's all here. And, and this all is where right I here. Read. You're right. Right here, right now. Ramdas said it. And you talk about it beautifully. And I think Map of Heaven, where, and this is really important, that when you talk about uh, these heaven principles, that fundamentally, it really in a certain way, these are pointing out transmissions for you could say, uh, this isn't the right term, but I think you get the idea, the ultimate heaven, that you're in it right now. That it's mm-hmm. really a matter of removing the cataracts of confusion. Where's that narrative of opening again? If you simply release the contractions, I think the supreme illusion is born from the supreme contractions that you're actually in heaven right now. You're in light in Buddhist languaging. You're in a pure land right now. We are. And and it's our fear, our belief systems, all these, these things that the Buddhist path and others work with that fundamentally allow us to um, open, relax and realize, Hey, we don't have to have an NDE to experience this, right? We don't have to experience 20 years of LSD. We simply need to relax, open our hearts and minds, and voila, we've been in heaven all along. We just didn't know it. Hiding,
1: Absolutely. Hiding Beautifully plain, put.
0: Hiding in plain sight. I think that's one mm-hmm. reason we don't see it in the Mahamudra tradition. They say, so obvious, you don't see it. So simply, you don't believe it. So easy, you don't trust it. Right. So therefore, we have all these machinations, all these different teachings and approaches and whatnot to fundamentally, as T.S. Eliot said, return to see things as if for the first time. So I can say a little bit more about that and how then this incredible life transforming experience is in fact being metabolized, um, digested, and incorporated into your daily life. Because just like when I was talking to my friend Chris, this to him is the central challenge after doing 20 years of these amazing sessions, these LSD um, sessions, coming down off the mountain. Um, coming down from heaven, or, or up from heaven, uh, and in in realizing the inseparability of samsara and nirvana, that heaven and earth are really right here. It's really, the, the path is more perceptual than actual,
1: is it not? You're not really going anywhere. You no, know, you don't have to. It's because it's all right here. The Big Bang happens here. All, all of the end of the universe happens here. All of the Uh, kind of transformative uh, evolution of consciousness happens right here. Uh, I would say the whole reason the universe exists is uh, to know thyself, just as is written on the uh, uh, entrance to the temple of the Oracle at Delphi in Greece, know thyself. But what we're coming to realize is the self-awareness we experience as sentient beings is a property shared with the universe at large. Yeah the universe is self-aware and we each get this little piece of that, but we can expand on that piece tremendously uh, with this kind of awareness and this uh, bigger discussion of of the nature of existence and reality. Uh, And really it's all about that binding force of love. And the more we feel how natural that love is and compassion, kindness, mercy for all of our fellow beings, uh, the more our, our world seems to come into alignment. And we realize that the now that we exist in Uh, is a really perfect now, and it is absolutely uh, swimming in that beautiful sense of love and connection. Uh, And this is something that for me is part of my consensus reality that I would say emerged from my NDE, but also has a huge amount to do with my daily meditations, and I believe is available to any sentient being. You don't have to have an NDE to fully get this kind of deeper layer of connection, that binding force of love, and its importance in determining uh, the emerging reality that we share. And so therefore, again,
0: to to circumambulate
1: back, then this whole notion of holding environments
0: that we're talking about at the beginning of life or end of life, really the the immediacy of that uh, narrative altogether that... If we simply open up, that's what I, that's one of the ways I look at death now, Evan. Is, yeah. is a kind of non-negotiable, uncompromising, forced relaxation, right? You're being right. you're being forced, vacation, right? You're being forced <laughs> to relax and open. And so to me, this this is a, it, it is such a game changer. And again, it's revelatory for us in the West that this is so difficult for us to believe. Again, because of our subscription to the degraded materialistic view, and so therefore. We need to hear it over and over and over again all these different ways this course of sanity through logic and pharmaceuticals and and all these different agencies and agents to really co-conspire to bring about this fundamental irreducibly unbelievably simple dictum which is just open and relax you are held by the beloved right now you are you're held by this universe of tremendous kindness compassion intelligence and love and the shamans know this, the mystics know it, scientists are begrudgingly almost being forced to know this through the implications of their legitimate science, scientists of their own work. But this, I think, cannot be overstated that we, it's already right here, right now. We simply have to open our hearts and minds, and there it is.
1: And I would point out that there are millions of experiencers around this world, not just near death experiencers, but just experiences of life who are following exactly the pathway you're talking about, they don't need the scientific world to tell them this is true. They've found it through personal experience. And in fact, that is what I think is going to drive this tremendous revolution, is so many people are having their own kind of personal experiences, showing this grander uh, reality, uh, living of this universe that we can all experience together. Uh, And that is what ultimately will push it. Uh, I like... uh, discussing the scientific arguments, because I yeah. think that it helps a certain segment of our population who has been kind of sucker punched by scientism into uh, falsely believing conventional materialism as being true. Uh, and yet there's a much broader quantum informed science of consciousness being pursued by groups like the Galileo commission yeah. at Galileo and also the scientific and medical network in England Um, and they have their own website you can find. But these scientific groups are absolutely uh, uh, kind of helping to usher the scientific community in this direction. It's because this is where all the evidence leads. That's right. It doesn't lead us back into the, uh, that paltry fiction of materialism, but it leads forward into a much more optimistic and empowering version of humor, human interaction with the universe. And this is good news for all of us because it gives us much greater power uh, over our own kind of destiny and unfolding of reality. Uh, but the more we embrace that sense of love and compassion, kindness, and mercy for others, the more those beautiful ingredients of wholeness are brought into our lives too. And I think,
0: really, Evan, this is just the the genius of your of your gift in this life is that you you act as this truly unique bridge between these usually disparate worlds of science and spirituality that have been so unnecessarily kept um, apart. And it really, as you argue so elegantly, it's the unification of science and spirit that you embody okay. through your experience. You you can speak to both sets of communities, and there are very many people that can do it. Um, and I think therefore using the, the central paradigm of the West, uh, the scientific paradigm, understanding of being able to talk the language and talk to scientists, that's no small thing. Because again, because we take such refuge in the alleged supremacy of this type of knowing, even though it's very um, limited bandwidth of knowing, your ability to mingle, to work and get in there and, and take the shots. It's like my, uh, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but it's a good one. You know, you're you're a pioneer, and and you can always tell the pioneer who the pioneers are, because they're the ones with all the arrows in their back. And and, and I always say it it's it, it's it's because of those shot behind them. And so you you know you've had a lot of arrows shot into your back. I won't yeah, name that's names. That's true. I try to be polite. I won't name names, but we know the people yeah. who have come after you. And I find it really again revelatory. Like, why is there such almost violent resistance to this? I I, uh, I would argue it has to do, it's based on fear and levels of psychological. It behavior. is
1: absolutely, you are correct. It is based on fear, just this tremendous fear. And you got to wonder where that comes from. I mean, that, that their work is irrelevant or something, you know, once they've done the homework and they realize that materialism is dead. Uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, the big challenge uh, for our scientific community has been trying to uh, integrate uh, uh, general relativity with quantum physics. I mean, the two just don't mix. They're like oil and water. You get these uh, strange infinities out of the equations uh, where you, you need something more sensible than that. Uh, so, in essence, I would say that uh, science and spirituality really can only move forward with each other. Uh, you know, for the materialist scientist who keeps insisting. Uh, on you know that there is no spirit to this universe, they they can find a home in Hugh Everett's 1957 many worlds interpretation of quantum physics. You know, infinite parallel universes unfolding in every uh instant of space time where a sentient observer makes an observation, and for them it's it's wonderful. You know, infinite parallel universes, and you don't have to then explain consciousness at all. uh But that's not the universe we live in. It's kind of like the old days of the. Ptolemaic epicycles. And yeah, you could explain planetary motions. It was very cumbersome, but you could do it. And then when uh, Copernicus put the sun at the center of it all, as opposed to the earth, all of a sudden everything made much more sense. The same is true today. Objective idealism is the best way to make sense yeah. of the measurement paradox in quantum physics. You know, entanglement, superposition, these things can be explained through objective idealism and viewing the brain as a reducing valve or filter, but not the ultimate originator of conscious awareness. And so really for science to move forward, it's got to embrace this kind of richer view of our spiritual nature and our connectedness, because that's where the answers lie. They don't lie in this crazy mythical position of infinite parallel universes. that don't really seem to be there, but they explain the math and the physics well enough so that you don't have to explain consciousness. I mean the whole thing is just pathetic.
0: It's, it's ridiculous. Really. And, and
1: I love how Bernardo really goes after right. the idiocy of those positions because they are just numbnut uh wrong. And uh, Bernardo, luckily, he knows a lot more about it. I mean, we make a lot of arguments in our book, Living to Mind for Universe concerning the quantum physics, but it was really after that book was published that I came to realize a much simpler pathway. And it's really uh, Carlo Rovelli's relational interpretation of quantum physics combined with uh, Bernardo's metaphysics, which are very much in alignment with what we propose in Living in a Mindful Universe. As I said earlier, Bernardo was a big supporter and endorser of Living in a Mindful Universe, as is Pim van Lommel and other scientists who study consciousness. Uh, But sooner or later, you got to realize it's the only way to preserve our sanity and understanding is to realize that consciousness is fundamental. I mean, it's something so many people have felt the reality of their soul, and yet the materialist scientists would scream at them, you don't have a soul, there's no such thing. Right. Well, you know, we're starting to find that there's a lot of scientific evidence for the reality of something like a soul and that we re- our souls seem to be related by a very powerful principle of love, compassion, kindness, mercy, and forgiveness at the core of the universe. So from a scientific perspective, just in terms of understanding reality, it's good to open our minds to these kinds of concepts.
0: Yeah. And it, again, it, it, it's, it's like idiocracy, the the science, scientists, and this is important. There's a difference between science and scientists, and that's what we need to understand. On one level, I can't remember who said it, um, science proceeds advances funeral by funeral.
1: Yeah, right? that's Max Planck who said yeah. that, the, you know, one of the founding fathers of quantum physics, one funeral go. at a time. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> but, you know, a, and Bar- Bernardo, I love the way he gets on this because he has the chops to do it how it's completely non-scientific and it's, it's not parsimonious. I mean, the, the, the gymnastics, they have to go through to try to explain things like reincarnation through the work of Steve and Tucker, the NDEs, what they have to go through to try to, to fit that into their materialistic view borders on comical, but it's not comical because it's tragic. Their inability to really be scientific and look at the facts and not their presumptions and hopes and fears of what those right. facts would be. And I, I would argue, Evan, that the, one of the principal reasons they're afraid psychologically is because there's no place for personal identity in the universe that's being described here. We're, we're talking about an egoless dimension of reality. And right. Daphne John talked about scientists as solid types, blinded by the luminosity of their own minds, where they literally, I think underneath it all, they're just afraid. There's nothing to push against if there is no other. And so by immediate implication in a non-dualistic world, you can't have self without others. So if you dissolve this the seeming sense of, of duality into a world made of love and, and uh, um, these really noble qualities of the awakened heart-mind, there's no place for the self-sense there. And I think underneath right. it all is this subliminal psychological terror that, hey, wait a second, wait a second. If I really subscribe to this, that fundamentally means I don't exist. Right. And therefore, they freak out against it.
1: Well, that's, that's certainly, I mean, the, the big uh, culprit in uh, addiction and alcoholism work is the ego. And therapists often see that, you know, the ego would rather see itself, uh, its host dead compared to the ego dead. Uh, and that's why you have to have a ritual sacrifice of the ego in a therapeutic setting to allow it to be reborn in a much healthier, more all accommodating state. And in many ways, that's what I think we're we're facing now. And you're pointing it out very well that... Uh, their kind of ego sense feels so threatened and the ego will fight like hell when it is threatened like that. And that's kind of the dynamic we're seeing of materialists trying to protect scientism and what it says about uh, the material world and materialism. Uh, And basically the evidence is very strong that uh, that's going the way of the dodo, it's going extinct. And that is what brings such extreme fear uh, into their hearts. Well, it's interesting,
0: is it not? Because if you if you profess a materialistic view, you're professing ground and territory. And this is for them, this is a turf war. You're basically yeah. fundamentally challenging their hood, their territory, you're invading yeah. it. And therefore, I think psychologically, they bristle. And, and I mean, I, I've heard some really esteemed scientists really say point blank, I wouldn't believe it even if it was true.
1: Right, exactly. It's like Daniel Dennett. <laughs>
0: exactly, yeah. Who Denali is such a
1: strong proponent of of materialism he says none of us are conscious we're all zombies yeah Uh, but and and he's on record as saying if if it were true he'd kill himself (laughs) i mean that sounds about as unscientific as you can possibly be if you discover the truth and you're forced to kill yourself because of that truth i mean what the heck
0: i think what he needs to suicide here he needs to kill his ego i mean that's funny yeah that
1: ego could easily stand some uh, rebirthing you're exactly right
0: (laughs) Oh, Evan, this is too great. As we start to close up, and, and this is so rich, I, I I could spend so many hours with you, but I want to respect your time. As we start to close up, um what are some of the biggest surprises? Uh, when you when you take away, you look back on whew, 15 years now of something that that really was uh a gift and ugly wrapping paper, right? I mean, this unbelievable transformative experience.
1: Well, I consider it beautiful wrapping paper.
0: Beautiful wrapping paper. Just because it
1: was a should have killed me seven day coma from bacterial meningoencephalitis doesn't mean it wasn't a beautiful experience. That's fantastic. So looking
0: back over that, um, biggest surprises, biggest takeaways. I mean, in so many ways, we've pinged on these already, but as we start to kind of sum up some of the central narratives of what we're exploring here, um, give us some some further final takeaway messages. Um, yeah, take well, away.
1: I would say to me, one of the biggest surprises in looking back on the whole process has been how much farther along the scientific world was Wonderful. at explaining all this than I knew at the time when I came out of Kenoma. I had no idea the tremendous evidence of work that had been done by scientists going back more than a century uh, to kind of put this whole thing in perspective. In fact, um, for example, when you read those bigelowinstitute.org essays, uh, you'll find, uh, I think it was Michael Naum's paper, where he basically said the whole question was settled in the late 1800s. Nobody ever should have doubted the reality of an afterlife beyond that point. Because uh, Frederick Myers and other investigators uh, uh, with uh, the various, uh, uh, you know, parapsychological associations had done so much good work proving the reality of an afterlife. And yet, obviously, our culture has has kind of a program for getting built into itself. And uh, the successes of materialist science through the 20th century were very remarkable. But so were... The, the the aspects of the ugly underbelly of those successes yeah. climate change addiction of fossil fuels economic polarization warfare tremendous violence in our streets conflict uh between people i mean a lot of this is just due to that false sense of separation uh that's inherent in materialist thought and yet materialism from a scientific perspective was pretty much disproven almost a century ago yeah, the with the advent of quantum <laughs> physics so you know, there's this huge mismatch in our modern culture between kind of intelligence and what we truly know about reality, and what our culture seems to understand about reality. And that's why I think this awakening is so absolutely essential for our very survival. Uh, the status quo will kill us. And uh, there's no question about that. In fact, not only Homo sapiens, but uh, probably Uh, A good uh, third to two thirds of the species of plants and animals on earth are threatened in the near term because of the actions of Homo sapiens in terms of toxicity, plastic pollution, uh, other types of pollution, and our addiction to fossil fuels and global warming. I mean, we really need to wake up. That's essentially what needs to happen. Humanity needs to become wise. Homo sapiens, the word sapiens means wise, But I would say when I look at what this one little species is doing to our planet and the extinction that it's driving, uh, there's nothing wise about that. And it really is time for us to wake up to this deeper, uh, more comprehensive reality about the nature of our existence and the very purpose for humanity and sentient life throughout the cosmos.
0: If I can be just a little bit of a devil's advocate here for a second, Evan, while I, I completely applaud and appreciate and celebrate your optimism, I truly do. And I, I believe in the basic goodness of humans and, and the basic goodness of the, the fabric of reality itself. I'm, I'm also somewhat aware of developmental matters and structures of evolution in terms of one's ability to even consider what we're talking about here. And so on one level, uh, philosophically, I maintain this optimism. But when I look at things, I, I, I sometimes get a little bit discouraged that Um, are are we really thinking pipe dream that somehow there will be this kind of collective massive awakening in time, or is the center of gravity, you know, so developmentally so low that we're going to capitulate to that. And I know some studies have shown that one can argue, yes, when things fall apart, we have the capacity uh, to kind of reorganize into higher levels, but some studies have shown that when things fall apart, the default is usually regressive, not progressive. The default is to try to get Humpty Dumpty back together yet again, and so, maybe give us a little bit of cause, because I love your optimism, but but I, I have to change uh, say that over the last couple of years, when I read all the data, what's happening and what's taking place there, it, it's hard for me to maintain my optimism, um, my lungta, as they say in Tibet, because there's so many forces of the dark side, and this developmental thing really does concern me. I mean, even if you even if you have a Buddha living in your household, a Christ living in your neighborhood. How many people are really gonna be open enough to receive that wisdom in time, or basically just capitulate to uh, reestablishing
1: and reinstating their comfort zones, their comfort Right. Zones? Well, what I will say is I've seen tremendous progress uh, in this world just in the last say decade. I know when we were at a, um, Karen and I were presenting at a scientific meeting in Belgium back in 2018, and one of the neuroscientists there from Stephen Laurie's group got up and gave a talk where she made the point that um, basically there had been a fourfold increase in the number of scientific papers around the world on the topic of NDEs after the book Proof of Heaven came out compared to the 32-year annual rate before Proof of Heaven came out. Uh, And they were making the point that that book was a catalyst that did that. I don't know if we can claim that at all, but it certainly was published at a very opportune time because the world was getting ready to really wake up as evidenced by this rapid uh, fourfold increase in the number of scientific papers about NDEs since the book proof of heaven came out. Now I'm very optimistic just based on uh, the observations I've made about this awakening. I think the scientific community is, is rapidly waking up. The rest of the world will follow rapidly because of that enthusiasm of the scientific world. But if worse comes to worse and you have to default to wolf of Um, uh, Max Planck's, uh, you know, One Funeral at a Time, do remember that our corporate leaders and political leaders who have participated in getting us into this horrific problem of climate change and toxic pollutions and corporate greed that we're in now, those people are dying off. So there is good news. (laughs) They're being recycled. Their souls will come back as much younger souls. And when I look at... uh, Greta uh, Thornburg and other of the youth of today, uh, I'm very optimistic they can certainly inherit the political and corporate control of this uh, world a lot quicker by my vote. Uh, let's get these old guys out of the way because they're clearly destroying the world. they their inept ignorance, uh, and it's time for the young ones to take over and do a far better job. Sorry, we're having to charge you with that difficult and challenging position to all the youth of today, but the reality is we know enough now, nobody should be stupid enough to think climate change isn't an emergency happening on our watch and that we all need to act. Uh, every choice we make moving forward about energy, about buying a car, about what we do in our daily lives should be towards sustainable energy away from burning fossil fuels and biomass, because those are a curse that is already uh, leading us into superstorms, uh, super droughts, uh, wildfires beyond the uh, historical record, uh, floods that are unprecedented. Uh, we're really getting ourselves into deep trouble if we continue in this blind and ignorant fashion but I think, uh, luckily, the noise being made by the youth of today won't allow for that kind of willful ignorance to destroy this planet and lead to the uh, extinction uh, of of thousands of very important species uh, that support Homo sapiens in our existence on this planet. So we're going to wake up by hook or by crook and uh, uh, the more people pay attention to this, this kind of podcast and these kind of discussions, the more they can wake up and participate in helping this world to avoid a catastrophe.
0: Oh, yeah. I, mean, I couldn't agree more. It's actually why we launched this podcast. There's a way, like I mentioned earlier, my languaging, translational spirituality, applied spirituality. And it's a great place to close. It's like Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master famously said, and I love this. Strictly speaking, there are no enlightened beings there's only enlightened activity. And right. so we, we take these teachings, we incorporate them, we digest them. And then we just don't keep them to ourselves, we bring them right. into the world, this is such desperate need. And we do so in a loving um, altruistic capacity as a way to rouse people from their collective slumber. And to that extent, I have to say you, you've been a, a, just a majestic voice in this rising chorus of sanity and it's it's been a total delight for me to become more acquainted with your work and with uh, with you personally and so as we really finally close up what are you working on now how can people learn more about you how 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 we, can we support you my community in your endeavors tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for you and how we we might be able to just step in behind you well i think the best thing
1: uh, is to uh, just follow me at evan e b e n alexander.com Uh, And uh, certainly people can communicate with me there. There's an active reading list, recommended reading, uh, links to books, links to a lot of interviews, presentations, etc. In addition, on EbenAlexander.com, there's a 33-day journey into the heart of consciousness, which is a free course that we offer to people. It started a worldwide community that now has more than 10,000 uh, members in it, so uh, just go to evanalexander.com and when you see that banner, the 33-day journey into the heart of consciousness, click yes, leave an email and uh, first name and you're off and running. Uh, likewise, um, sacredacoustics.com is an excellent resource for people who want to learn more about meditation. Uh, also, our books, uh, Proof of Heaven, Map of Heaven, and especially that third one, Living in a mind Universe, which goes a long way towards helping people Uh, to understand the scientific revolution and also participate with their own kind of meditative uh, input. And also, I would like to suggest to people another way you can uh, kind of keep in touch with us. This was Karen's brilliant idea. During the pandemic, every two weeks, we recorded uh, uh, interviews with some of the people that we would have been seeing, other scientists studying consciousness, other experiencers, et cetera. And that whole set of interviews is available for free at unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Go to that website, start looking at those interviews. Uh, You'll find a lot of our uh, friends and colleagues interviewed there. And and it really helps you to put together the big package of what we're talking about here. Uh, So there's a lot of material there at evanalexander.com that can help people get going in this. And just stay in touch. Uh, You know, we're building a community of like-minded thinkers and people who want to uh, Uh, enjoy kind of helping to change the world for the better. And and unitedinhopeandhealing.com is an excellent resource for people to get involved with that kind of activity. It also includes a a mental health practitioner training course that we did with Dr. Anna Youssef. She she wrote the uh, peer-reviewed medical case report supporting uh, sacred acoustics use in anxiety in a busy Manhattan practice, her case, uh, her pilot study showing 26% reduction in anxiety symptoms over two weeks versus 7% controls. That came out in February 2020 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. So, all these are resources for people who want to help others and help themselves and help this world at large. Uh, to grow up mature, become wise, and uh, let's rescue all these species from extinction, and help this world be a far better place.
0: It's amazing. And all the other links and references to text and supporting material is tremendously appreciated. And I want to close with something that you frequently mentioned in your books that is so uh, appropriate here, and that is the power of gratitude, that to uh, uh, be grateful for the, the good karma, that we have, the good situation that we have, the auspicious ability to share in work like yours. And so from my end, a deep, deep bow of gratitude, uh, personally on behalf of my community, and uh, just a continued sense of profound appreciation for everything that you've done and continue to do. It's sort it's of a marvelous gift in this world and um, it doesn't go unnoticed. So deep, deep bow of gratitude. Well, thank, thank you Thank so you,
1: Andrew, and very grateful to you for all the work you do to get this kind of message out to the world at large uh, help make this world a far better place and bring a lot of of peace and harmony into people's lives. So thank you for that. More than welcome. So until
0: next time, all the best to you and let's definitely stay in touch.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Great talk with you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye until next time.
0: Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for joining us and a really big thanks to Evan for taking time out of his very busy schedule to share his truly remarkable story. If you enjoyed this offering, be sure to check out all the other conversations on the Edge of Mind podcast.